My Savior, art thou, if ever I love thee, my Jesus is now. Boy, I, I was going to get you to sing it with me, but if nobody knows it any better than that, maybe we better go with Amazing Grace. <laughs> you, you. Okay, let's try it. My Jesus, I love Thee. I know Thou art mine. For Thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior, art Thou. If ever I love Thee, my Jesus, tis now amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost, but now I'm found. Twas blind, but now I see. Lord, we love you tonight and are so grateful for the opportunity that you have afforded us to be here in this place, to look into your word, and to give thought and meditation to things which are spiritual. We pray, Lord, that you would help us tonight. Open our eyes, help us to see, help us to understand. Speak to our hearts, draw us nearer to yourself. Be pleased, I pray, with everything that's said and done in this place tonight. And by all means, Lord... We want to say to you tonight, we do love you. We praise you tonight. We thank you for your blessings for each person who is here. You're an awesome God. What a privilege it is to be your children. As we seek your word tonight, search your word, study your word, open our eyes, we pray. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, when I came in this afternoon, the sun was shining. And so I was wearing my shades. But I brought them in with me for this reason, to put them on when we get started. Um, simply to illustrate something to you. If we approach the Word of God with our own particular preference of shades, of course I'm not talking about the tint of these glasses now, I'm talking about the vantage point from which we view Scripture. If you view the Bible through um, Baptist shades, it's going to affect how you interpret Scripture, right? Will it? 
if you view the Bible with your Presbyterian shades on, it's going to affect how you interpret the Bible. True? If you um, interpret the Bible with Pentecostal shades on, it's going to affect how you understand and explain the Bible. And all of us bring a particular slant or a particular understanding or a particular bent or leaning when we come to study the Bible, when we read the Bible. We all understand it different ways. And I would suggest to you that what we should do is make a conscious decision most of the time to take our glasses off and study the Bible. And there's no danger in that because when you study the Bible, you're seeking for truth anyway. You're not seeking for validation to justify your the way you've always looked at it, right? Are we seekers of truth or not? Yes. Yes, yes we are. So tonight, I'd like for us to take our shades off, and I'm going to be a little bit more, um, perhaps blatantly honest tonight than I am at some times. I'm going to follow up where we kind of left off Sunday um, with this idea of um, it being permissible, and yes, even possible to be living in sin, and yet to be on your way to heaven at the same time. Uh, I think we pretty well covered that Sunday morning. But there's another angle to that that I want to look at tonight, which I feel like I kind of opened the door to. And this is a good time for us to talk about this tonight. So we're going to be looking uh, tonight. Our topic is going to center around something. How many understand or how many know what Calvinism is? Evidently, not many. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Calvinism tonight and, and what that means. So, uh, John Calvin was a, a French theologian who lived in the 1500s. He died, in fact, in 1564. Um, the, the father of the Reformation, somebody tell me who that is. Martin Luther. Martin Luther kind of led the Protestant movement uh, after the Reformation was begun. And as Martin Luther passed off the, the scene, somebody else kind of rose up to carry the charge in the banner, and that was John Calvin. And Calvin had some ideas that are still very um, prominent today among Christians. Um, his teaching, his belief is known as Calvinism. And tonight, I want to talk about that a little bit. And you say, well, that's not Scripture. It's very much Scripture. We need to know what Scripture says about what this man taught. Because it is affecting a lot of people and a lot of churches even today. Um, T-U-L-I-P. That is an acrostic that is used to... Um, give definition to and define Calvinism. We'll go to that in just a minute. The Southern Baptist Convention has been struggling with this for a good many years now. Um, one of the things I learned after we moved here 21 years ago, especially in the last 10 years, that there's, there's quite a 
quite a thrust being put forth in the seminary here. The local seminary, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, Calvinism is making a rise. It's, it's growing. The younger generation, uh, the ministers who are coming on, the professors who are teaching the classes now are pushing Calvinism. It is um, reported that uh, probably 30% now, a third of pastors in the um, uh, Southern Baptist Convention are proponents of and teaching Calvinism and promoting that in their churches. Now, that probably doesn't mean anything to you if we don't know what Calvinism is. But when I start looking and, and sharing with us what Calvinism teaches, that is an alarming thing. It really is. And it has, it has ramifications for what we believe and what our neighbors believe, as I think we'll see in a pretty obvious manner here over the next few minutes. So, um, probably the most, uh, the staunchest uh, Calvinists are Presbyterians. And there is a, a doctrine that Presbyterians have um, that I really didn't know they believed in until I visited a Presbyterian church several years ago and, and had a co-worker and we got to talking about that. And, and that simply is to say that everything that happens is under God's control and even to the point where if you have uh, uh, someone that you love gets hit on in a head-on collision and they died, then that was God's will. I, I have a real problem with that one. Uh, but, but the Presbyterians have a staunch grip on Calvinism, which basically teaches that, that everything happens, God's in control, so that, that it was God's will. Personally, I don't believe it's God's will when a man goes into a uh, hotel room in Las Vegas and barricades himself in and then shoots dozens of people, as we saw happen a year ago. I don't think that was God's will. I think that was a deranged, demonic man who pulled that off, and God would much rather that not have happened. But you see, we happen to believe, those of us who are here tonight, we happen to believe in free will. We believe that God gives us as individuals uh, a, a right to make a choice. We can choose to live for God or reject God. We can follow after God or we can go on our own ways and say, I don't want anything to do with God. He gives us free will. We make that choice. Calvinism doesn't teach that, as we're going to see in a few moments. Calvinism teaches quite the opposite. And so let's move through that over the next few moments and see what Calvinism teaches and how it has affected Christianity as we know it today, and why that should be something that we are, number one, aware of and mindful of, and number two, be leery about. Uh, Calvinism teaches, and the, the first thing that's listed here is total um, some word it total depravity. And the other word is total inability. That is to say that there is absolutely nothing in us that can give us the ability to draw near to the Lord. We are, we are totally depraved. We are totally wicked. We are totally alienated from God. We do not have the ability to do anything in our own power 
to move towards Him, uh, to draw near to Him. That is totally God's prerogative whether we are able to do that or not. Now, I want us to look at some scriptures. So, uh, if you have your Bible, when I call out a scripture, I think I'll call out several and get different people to read these. So, I'm going to call out a text. I'd like for somebody to say, I've got it. And then I'll go to the next one. And I'll give another text. And you say, I've got it. And then we'll go back and read them all, okay? So, if you got a Bible and you're ready... Be ready to answer for me, okay? Acts 17, verse 30. I got it. Thank you. 2 Peter 3, 9. Do, 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 do. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to have it. Thank you. Acts 11, verse 18. Acts 16, verse 31. Revelation 22, verse 17. That's an easy one to find, guys. Last book in the Bible. Yeah, it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> you just needed that little bit of encouragement, didn't you? Okay. Now, everybody else can follow along if you want to and, and look for these, or you can just kind of sit back and listen very attentively as these are read. But whoever has... Acts 17, verse 30, if you would go ahead and read that. Therefore, God overlooked and disregarded the former ages of ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, that is, to change their old way of thinking, to regret their past sins, and to seek God's purpose for their life. So God commands men everywhere to do what? That doesn't sound like we don't have anything we can do. Quite the opposite. It says there is something we can do, right? We can make that move toward God. We can repent. God commands men everywhere to repent. So we are not uh, so totally depraved and so unable to draw near to God as there's nothing we can do. On the contrary, there's something definitely we can do. We can turn to the Lord and repent. Second Peter verse 3, 9. Now, these verses that we're reading are also going to come into play in other areas. So if you hear them repeated or they're going to, if I, if I, if I kind of talk around what we're doing to move to something else, don't let that bother you. But there's so much in this verse. The Bible says it's not, God is not willing that any should perish. That's going to come into, into view here in just a moment. I want you to notice that. That's, God doesn't want anybody to be lost. Amen? Now, Calvinism teaches something very different from that. But we read right here that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to do what? To repent. All of us should repent. So there again, there is something we can do. We can draw near to the Lord and we can repent. Now, do you think that God would, um, would tell us we need to repent if it wasn't possible for us to repent? No, anytime he tells us that we need to do something, that opens the door that there's a possibility we can do that. So it is, it is natural to understand that all of us have free will and we have the option of going to the Lord in repentance. Acts 11 verse 18. 
God, saying, Then hast thou also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. There it is again, the opportunity for anybody. You didn't even have to be Jewish. You could be a Gentile, a heathen. All you had to do is to go before him in repentance and receive life. Repentance comes first, and that results in life. Believing comes first, that results in salvation. Salvation doesn't come first, and then you believe. Repentance comes first, and then you experience new life. Acts 16, verse 31. Would the Lord tell us we need to believe if it were not possible for us to believe? That's silly, isn't it? Yes, there's something we can do. We can repent and we can believe. That's what the Bible teaches us. So the idea that we're so totally depraved and have no ability whatsoever to draw near to the Lord is absolutely foreign to what the Scripture says. Calvinists say when you are saved, then you'll believe. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Let me just go ahead and tell you. Calvinism says that some people are predestined to be lost. Some people are predestined to be saved. If you're predestined to be saved, you cannot be lost. If you're predestined to be lost, you cannot be saved. I agree. <laughs> yeah. I'm serious. That sounds so absurd, we would think nobody could believe that. But that's being taught in our universities today to pastors. Pastors are teaching it to their churches. And the end result is, as we'll get back close to where we were Sunday morning, that means you can do anything you want to because if you're saved, you're saved. And no matter what sin you commit, God's predestined you to be saved. So if you're saved, you're good to go. Free pass. Which is absurd. Um... It's mind-boggling that anybody who reads the Bible could believe this. Revelation 22, verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Now, the, the Bible has said from these verses we've read that we should repent, the Bible has said that we should believe, and the Bible has said that we should come. All things that we have to do, right? I have to come, I have to believe, I have to repent. They say, you can't do any of that. We don't have that within us. We're so totally depraved and unable to do, un unable to do any of that. But the Scripture teaches otherwise, that we have a responsibility to draw near to the Lord. The next thing, or the next, the next uh, section we want to look at is, is something that really troubles me, and that is the doctrine of un-unconditional what? No, I wish it was, I wish it was love. Unconditional election. That is the idea that God has already determined. Now, what's unconditional mean? There's no way you can change it. It's, it's not left up to any other thing except whoever has already determined this. There is unconditional election. That is to say, you are either... It, it, the Lord has elected you 
to be lost or he has elected you to be saved. And that's unconditional. It cannot change. Calvinism. That's a great question. That's a great question. It's a it's an absurd system of thinking. It really is. So unconditional election, you, you really never know. You can never really be sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't I don't need to go to church. I don't need to repent. I don't need to watch what I do. I don't need to obey the Ten Commandments. I don't need to do anything because if I'm saved, I'm saved. If I'm lost, I'm lost. And there's no conditions attached to either. So you could fast and pray for ever. And if you were, if you were predestined to be lost, none of it would matter. According to what, what Calvinism says. So unconditional election. It is, let's, let's read, it's scripture time again. Are you all ready? I need John 3, 15 and 16. I need it and I got it. John 3, 15. You don't have to find it before you say. Who? Okay, Tony's got it. John 4, 14. John 12, 46. Teresa, Acts, tw- Acts 2.21. I don't know who that was, but thank you. Acts 10.43. Romans 10.13. Revelation 22.17. Okay. All right, here we go. Some people are decreed to be saved without any conditions being met. Others are, condition, are, are predetermined that they're going to be lost. That's actually what this is saying is that God doesn't love all men. Which is whoever's getting ready to read is going to read John three fifteen and 16. We're going to find out he does love all. Wait a minute. Who, who is whoever? <laughs> whoever in the in the original the word whoever means whoever okay continue please Tony God so loved the what that So that whoever, whoever, whoever. John 4.14. Remember the word whosoever and whoever. John 4.14. John 4.14. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water John twelve forty six. I have come as the light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Are you all listening to the whoever's? Acts twenty twenty one. Excuse me, Acts two twenty one. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Mm. Acts ten forty three. 
through his name, everyone who believes in him, whoever trusts him and relies on him, except, accepting him as Savior and Messiah, receives forgiveness of sins. Wow. Pretty plain, isn't it? <laughs> Romans ten thirteen. Revelation twenty two seventeen. The Holy Spirit and the bride, the church, the believers say, Come and let the one who hears say, Come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take and drink the water of life without cost. Wow. Whoever. There's not unconditional election. I will promise you there's nobody sitting in this room that God has predestined to be lost. Amen. And so we should take we should take great encouragement from that, and we should also, I think, have a great disdain for this despicable doctrine that would teach people such a thing, and have them living under that cloud their whole life. It's, it's, there's no need for us to go preach to tell everybody about the gospel. That's exactly right. It undermines everything we believe and teach. It does. It's all pointless if this is true. It, it does explain a lot as we're going to end up tonight right where we were Sunday. Yeah. It does. It does, absolutely. The next um, thing we're going to talk about here, the tenet, is limited atonement. Who was the atonement for? Everybody. So what would limited atonement be? Yeah, if you were predestined, it was for you. But if you're not predestined to be saved, it wasn't for you. It wouldn't do anything for you. In other words, Christ died for the elect, the saved only. He didn't die for everybody, according to Calvinism. Here we go with the scriptures again. First John 2.2. 2. Hebrews two nine. First Timothy two six. John one twenty nine. Second Peter three nine. Second Peter two nine. Three nine, I'm sorry. How'd you know that? Oh, I said it wrong one time and said it right the other time. Second Peter three nine. Thank you. First Peter two four. Good. Thank you. Okay, here we go. Limited atonement. What does the Bible say? First John two two. Listen to who Christ died for now. For the sins of the whole world. For the sins of the whole world. For God so loved the world. 
He died for the sins of the whole world. Hebrews 2.9 That he might taste death for who? Everyone. Everyone. First Timothy two verse six. He gave himself a ransom for those who were predestined to be saved. No. He gave himself a ransom for who? All. All. Absolutely. First John, excuse me, John one twenty nine. Sin of the world. That's who Jesus came to take the sin away from. Second Peter three verse nine. That That's you. Go ahead and read it, okay. Annette. That's fine. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to us not willing that any should perish, but that all should I like the way you said that. Read that again, please, that last part. Not willing that. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to his That doesn't sound like a limited atonement to me. Not willing that any should perish. He wants all men to be saved, the scripture says. That's what his will is. Okay. First Timothy two verse four. I don't know who it was. Somebody got it, read it. God will have, everybody say it, all men. That's His will. God would have all men to be saved. That's what He wants. Not limited to His favorites or a certain few. Right? Now, if we were to stop right there, I will tell you, I think we've learned enough about Calvinism. We know we need to ditch it right now. Don't you think? But we've got two more to go to, and um, just to be fair to the tulip here, we'll go ahead and <laughs> finish it up. The next one is irresistible, resistible grace. Irresistible grace. What does that mean? Now, what you've learned about Calvinism already, to talk about irresistible grace, how does it fit in? Irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. 
Exactly. You can't say no to that grace. If you're predestined to be saved and God gives you that, you can't resist it. You're going to accept it because you're predestined to be saved. It's irresistible. You, you can't... No free will. No free will. You can do anything you want to do, live any way you want to live, commit any sin you want to commit, and you can't get away from the fact that that grace is irresistible and you're going to be saved whether you want to be or not. That's, that's the end result of irresistible grace. You can't say no to it. Grace is a wonderful thing, isn't it? But you know what? You can say no to it. You can reject the promises of God. You can reject the gift of God. You can say no to it. Lots of people do. And so, irresistible grace is yet another thing. Let's see examples of, in the Scripture, where grace was resisted. Three Scriptures this time. Matthew twenty three thirty seven. Thank you. Acts seven fifty one. Hebrews ten thirty nine. Thank you. Irresistible grace says that you you are not able to resist the call of God because you are predestined. He's got you. Okay, Matthew twenty three verse thirty seven. Do you hear what Jesus said? He he weeps over Jerusalem. He says, I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks, and you would not gather. You would not come. You would not respond. Acts seven fifty one. You stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. There they Resisting the Holy Spirit, saying no to the Lord, refusing the grace of God. Yeah, it can be resisted. We have free will. Hebrews 10, verse Turning back, saying no, going the wrong way. His grace can be resisted, as most of us know quite well. Well, I'll tell you what. Before we go any farther, I'm going to ask for a show of hands. Based on what we have seen so far from the Scripture, how many believe that this doctrine of irresistible grace is total error? Is it wrong? Is it error? Okay, let's just mark it out then. How many believe that this idea of limited atonement is error? Okay. How many believe that this idea of unconditional election 
is error. Okay? How many believe that this idea of total depravity, total inability, there's nothing you can do to make a move toward God? How many believe that's error? Okay. That's the next step. I'm sorry I set you all up like that. But, but that's the next step. So, <laughs> I wish I was an artist. Okay, guys, I'm not an artist, and, and you know that. Um, anybody here an artist and can draw me a stool? Okay, here's a stool, and here's a leg, and here's a leg, and... Hey, that's not half bad. There's there's a stool with four legs, right? I didn't say it came from... It's a cheap stool. Okay. Now listen, if, if you got a stool like this and there's four legs, and and I cut this leg off, which we've done already... Right? We, we had four things we marked off the list. Am I right? Now this is Calvinism. It's got four legs. We cut that one off. Then we cut this one off. What's going to happen? It's going to fall. And then certainly when we touch, cut these off, it's going to fall. Am I right? There's only And there's one thing left that we haven't talked about. And it's the one that I, I want us to spend the rest of our time on. And it's the one that gets to the heart of where the problem really is. And I need to make myself a little bit more room here. If you all will bear with me just a second. I'm not sure about spelling. Somebody don't look right. I believe it's right, but it sure don't look right. But anyway, forget the spelling. Perseverance of the saints. How many know anything about that? Do you know what that is? Somebody find, define it for me. Put it in just old Wake County, everyday layman's language. What do you call it? No? No? What's this doctrine telling us? The Calvinistic doctrine of perseverance by the saints is much better known as once saved, always saved. Perseverance of the saints. There you go. Now remember, this, this perseverance of the saint really should have been written down here. 
But if this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong, how could that be right? Or, to look at it this way, if perseverance of the saints means once saved, always saved, and once saved, always saved is based on the fact that, number one, uh, we can't come to the Lord ourselves, but that's not a problem really because we have been already determined to be saved. So there's unconditional election if we happen to be among those who are predestined to be saved. And there's limited atonement that is just for us. And His grace is irresistible. So when we come to the Lord and we surrender to Him, we must be among those who are the predestined ones. And if you're predestined, there's no way to change it. Because that's what we've been taught by Calvinism. So that means I can do anything I want to do, say anything I want to say, act any way I want to act, commit all kind of sin, live like the devil. But who cares? I'm safe. It's like the umpire at a baseball game when there's all kinds of things going on. And then all of a sudden the guy runs into, runs into home plate and the umpire says, safe! He could have been as out as Job's turkey, but if the umpire says he's safe, he's safe. Right? And Calvinism teaches us the perseverance of the saint, or some people would prefer to say the preservation of the saints. Same thing. That is, if Calvinism teaches that if, if you are among the elect, you're among the predestined to be saved, it really doesn't matter what you've done because you have this to take care of you. It was God's will that you be one of them who was going. Now, if you know... If you believe this, that you're once saved and always saved, and there's absolutely nothing that can change that, because that's God's will for your life and it's set in stone, is there any incentive there for you to live holy? Mm -mm. Not at all. You've removed every reason to honor God and worship God and live for God, because there's no... no ramifications if you do anything wrong because you're now y'all i hope y'all understand what i'm saying i'm not saying that any of this is right every bit of this is wrong i'm I'm trying to say this is what other people are saying that cannot be right and a lot of ways it's getting worse than the wild west because you've got Christians going to churches, you got men marrying women, men marrying men, and women marrying women, and saying it's okay, it's all right, and they're all going to church and they're all doing their thing, and they're saying we're okay, you know. They feel like that that once they've accepted the Lord, anything goes, and it is creating a gigantic mess. It's it's exactly what the devil wants. Now listen, if I as a pastor stood in front of you every Sunday and gave you the impression that it didn't matter what you did, but your name was written in solid gold in heaven and there was no way it could ever change, that gives you no incentive to live right. It gives you no incentive to be spiritual and commit your life to the Lord. Because if if it can't be changed, if it's irreversible, then you can do anything you want to do, say anything you want to say, act any way you want to act, live any way you want to live, because it doesn't change a thing. Then you've got to admit a lot of people would take that liberty and live any way they want to live, which is exactly what's happening in our world today. 
all because the truth is not being preached and declared, and we're buying into this doctrine that that a lot of churches now, as I mentioned, I, the Southern Baptist Church is the one. They're in the news all the time. This is I'm not putting any church down. I'm just telling you. I read a whole list of reports today the last few years in the Southern Baptist Conventions when they meet. This is coming up, and they're they're fighting over this and trying to keep it from taking over their church. You know what it's done? The belief of this doctrine, according to statistics in the Southern Baptist Convention, the acceptance of this doctrine, as it gets more and more pronounced in their churches, it has decreased the number of altar calls being given. Does that make sense? Why would you invite people to come to the altar and pray if they're either saved or they're lost? Already. It has increased the number of baptisms. I mean, decreased the number of baptisms. It has decreased the number of conversions because you quit preaching the gospel. You quit preaching holiness. You quit preaching accountability that you're going to give an answer to God for how you live. All of it goes out the window and it's a feel-good message and you tell everybody that they're saved. Because you've you got to be one of the ones who are saved because you're in church. It's always easier to take the take the. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it goes back to what the Bible says that people in the last days will have itching ears, and they want the preacher to tell them what they want to hear and satisfy that. They want to hear not the gospel that says you've got to have a changed life and live holy, walk with God, but just a feel-good uh, thing for everybody. Uh, your hand? Somebody had a hand up over here, I thought. Do they have a... I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I didn't, I didn't. Do, do they have a different version of the Bible? Than, <laughs> because right here in black and white, I mean, like, I know that the Jehovah's Witnesses have a different version of the Bible. Yeah. The the statistics right now prove that the younger preachers coming on out of seminaries are going with Calvinism and leaving the gospel and 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 the and the and the Southern Baptist Convention is upset about it. They should be, absolutely. And and I've been enough here in the community long enough, you know, 21 years now. And I've gone to the seminary and attended some classes, audited classes. And I'll sit there and I'll hear discussions that are going on as I sit there. And, and, a lot, and other people who have attended just church that have gone to the seminary would tell me, man, I'm telling you, Calvinism is catching on. The, the, the professors are teaching that. And my research today just confirmed that. I saw article after article. Uh, seminar, um, three-day seminars put on by the seminary where they discuss that and and different things. It's And it's not just there, but while you've got... Now, I don't want anybody going away here from here saying I was talking junk about the Baptist. I'm just telling you what's going on. But while we've got the Southern Baptist Convention that is... This is growing 
you've got churches like what are called free will Baptist. What do you think that means? They do not go according to Calvin's doctrine. They recognize man has free will. A man can submit his life to the Lord and say yes. And a man can make up his mind he wants to live in sin and say no. But he has free will. Right? That's a free will Baptist. And they're growing. And like, and then uh, Ron Bomar, who he and his wife aren't here tonight. But uh, Ron is a uh, retired pastor. Not from the Free Will Baptist Church, but another, another arm of the Baptist Church. It's not Southern Baptist, but another. And he'll tell you in a heartbeat, this is garbage. He didn't want anything to do it, do with it when he was a pastor. So there are a lot of Baptist churches, and and in in fairness to Southern Baptist Convention, I've already shared with you the statistic. About thirty percent of them now are leaning toward Calvinism or embracing it. That means how many are not embracing it? Seventy percent. But I'm just I've shared these statistics to let you know that this is a prominent thing. John Calvin lived in the in the fifteen hundreds, but this this system of thinking and theology that he promoted and made popular is is now resurging through the land because it gives people license basically to do anything they want to do and live any way they want to live. And we should be very wary of it. And very, very careful that we listen to the Word of God and, and do what it says. Now, with John Calvin in 1530, the majority of people were illiterate. So they couldn't, they, couldn't, they would go, you know, okay, if John Calvin said it and he's a illiterate man, you know, and he has all his mm-hmm. teaching, so he must be right. Mm-hmm. But today, I, I don't know, I got my old thing. Are they reading a different Bible? It it is not logical, is it? No. It makes no sense. And the very people you think would be the most intelligent to to stand and be professors in colleges and teach that are the ones that are promoting this and teaching Calvinism. Well, it's a sign of the end, folks, is what it is. It's appealing. I can see why people would, you know, want to follow mm-hmm. you know, I'm just scared. Well, well, I mean, I don't know for sure what I'm in on my hand. Look, you've got a preacher teaching you, you know, saying you're, you're in, you know, whether they know it or not. Yeah. There is a certain appeal to that. If you don't have the, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Remember the the scriptures on Sunday morning from Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5? Adulterers, fornicators, and this whole list of things. And this was written to the church. And, And Paul said, okay, if you're an adulterer, or if you're committing adultery, you are an adulterer. If you're an adulterer, you're not going to have anything to do with God's kingdom. Right? He, he said if you're a liar, or if you're lying, you're a liar. And all liars are have their place where? In the, in the lake of fire. So we've got that reality in the Word. 
over and over and over again to the church because the book of Galatians was written to the church. The book of Ephesians was written to the church. The scripture that says put away lying was written to the church. And that's because we need to know we can't act like the world and do things that God condemns and expect to have His favor and His blessing over our lives. It makes a difference how you live, doesn't it? And that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the way to destruction is like like the uh, 540 <laughs> and and the and the way to heaven is going to be like turning in the driveway out here you got to be careful when you go in yeah Yeah, if you would just listen very carefully for, for, for what I'm about to say, because I don't want anybody to mis, misquote me or misunderstand me. Um, I have said for years that I believe in once saved, always saved. I believe once I'm saved, if I pray and seek God and read my Bible and be faithful, I may stumble somewhere along the way, but I'll always be saved because I'll ask for forgiveness if I stumble. And I'll keep on going. If I'm once saved, I can always be saved. And it is true. No man can take me out of his hand. Amen? That is the truth. But just as surely as I had to come to Jesus freely and repent of my sins, I can walk away from Jesus too if I make that decision to do so. Right? You have free will. Free will works both ways. You can come to Jesus. You can walk away from Jesus. But as long as, as long as I will, as long as I will pray and go to church and read my Bible and do what I'm supposed to do, am I going to be perfect? No. I'm going to stumble occasionally, but then that's why Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, which is a daily prayer, it's a daily prayer because He said, give us this day our daily bread. You like to eat every day? It's a daily prayer. And he says, when you pray, part of that prayer should be, and forgive us our trespasses. Right? Now, that wasn't my idea. That was his idea. His idea was to pray every day, forgive us, as we forgive those who trespass against us. So we, we constantly should be going before the Lord and say, Lord, if I blew it somewhere today, if I was unchristlike today, if I was... In any way, if you frowned, if, if your countenance changed in a negative way because of me, Lord, please forgive me. But you know what? If you'll do that and walk with that kind of commitment to the Lord, you will never, ever have to worry about eternity. Because no man can take you out of his hands. Amen? Amen. So I believe in when I'm once saved, I can always be saved if I do those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anybody have any comments or questions before we close tonight? I just believe that if we claim to be the church, we need to act like the church. Tell it. We need to 
That's right. The thing is, we should be as close closer to be. Yeah. In love. That's that's pretty plain. Thank you. That's not hard to understand, is it? <laughs> For those of you who don't know, he's a school teacher. 